The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Today, I am talking with Mark Fraunfelter, the Assistant Director of the Special Security Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, NCSC. We've chatted with him a few times at Clearance Jobs. He's always a great expert. So thank you so much, Mark. We've talked previously, Mark, about the UK, their annual security appraisal form. I loved hearing about that. I think we kind of think about US personnel security existing within a vacuum. I mean, maybe that's me because I'm kind of like an, a me versus the world kind of a person. But we forget that there are a lot of lessons learned from our friends abroad. And I appreciated seeing, I know NCSC shared a lot of the content around the Think Before You Link campaign that I believe was a UK-based campaign kind of urging caution about just awareness over who you contact online. They had some really some really high quality videos that they produced about, you know, just knowing, hey, if you connect with somebody online and you don't actually know that person, there is a decent chance that they are a foreign national person that is just after your personal information for nefarious purposes. So maybe kind of talk about, are there other collaborations like that that you see with kind of your UK counterparts in security? Are there lessons to be learned from kind of friends overseas and how does NCSC apply those when it comes to just the personnel security side of it? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. You mentioned the annual security appraisal was actually developed initially in in the UK. And they're actually aware of our intent to implement it in our continuous vetting process and Trusted Workforce 2.0. And they want to leverage our work to consider improvements based on what we learned from our implementation. And you mentioned the Think Before You Link campaign. Another idea we learned from the Brits We actually produced a video called Never Night Connection, which um, is on our website, NCSC website. And the Aussies did their own version of the Think Before You Link campaign. So it's obvious that we're working with our Five Eye partners, continually sharing ideas and, and best practices. But as far as from personnel vetting, one recent Five Eye project was an initiative to ensure there's trust and confidence in the vetting and security clearance process across the five countries. And so this involved subject matter expert teams from each country to take a deep dive look into how each country conducts interviews, background checks, checks of social media, psychological evaluations, et cetera. And based on this feedback, we created a common assurance framework. The framework focuses on commonalities of personnel vetting among each country. And based on this research and project, we reached the conclusion that each country vetted individuals to generally the the same standards. And so this is just one step in the direction where we hope to leverage this project to improve information sharing among our Five Eye partners and, and to continue to expand on our collaborative relationship. NCSC here, the National Counterintelligence Security Center, we host a periodic meeting 
with our partner, Five Eye Partners, to discuss issues of concern and share best practices. And also, each country actually takes a turn at holding a quarterly conference where a host country formulates an agenda and it pulses each participant on how to address a particular topic. We actually have such a meeting coming up in the next few weeks, and topics can range from things like handling unauthorized disclosures, insider threat programs, recruitment, how do we recruit into our intelligence communities, the use of the polygraph, things like that. Recently, we've been discussing the impact of of the pandemic and how it affected mental health and well-being of the workforce, And, and again, sharing best practices amongst the five countries. Ironically, the messaging remains consistent with how each country kind of addresses uh, COVID restrictions. And one important theme, you know, certainly here in the U.S. and each country's desire to erase the stigma that seeking mental health counseling or treatment could potentially have a negative impact on one's clearance. With And you mentioned this, we've had a tough couple of years with anxiety-related issues, including depression on the rise in the wake of COVID. The workforce really needs to be encouraged to seek treatment and counseling and not deterred from doing so. And, and so these are the things we're working with in the personnel vetting arena with our partners overseas. And we're making a lot of progress. And I think the relationship and the partnering has, has been just uh, tremendous to this point. You know, you think about a lot of the stressors on the workforce and even kind of, you know, the same kind of countries that are attacking or looking for information. You share a lot of the same challenges. So it makes sense that it would be in your best interest to kind of look and see how you can continue to share information, not just about the threats that you're interacting, but how you can address issues within the workforce. Because whether it's, again, COVID or technical related issues, a lot of those things are going to be the same. Well, now I'm going to pivot because I can't get somebody with ODNI on the line and not talk about drugs and CBD products, some of my favorites over at Clearance Jobs, just because we continue to get so many questions about drug use, CBD products, marijuana investments. We actually just noted there was an uptick in clearance denials related to marijuana use. I think people are kind of expecting that there will be fewer. I don't know, I guess because states are legalizing it, but the federal laws haven't changed. So those are some of the hot topics that I see just within the chatter we get from candidates, applicants over at clearancejobs.com. How does ODNI kind of address some of these hot topics. You mentioned the cascade of policy documents coming, so I can't wait. How does policy, how do you address all these kind of emerging challenges that come in, whether it's drug use or something else? Yeah, you, Linda, you're right. It's it, marijuana and CBD products. It, it, it's what we call a hot topic here. And obviously it's undergoing a lot of discussion as far as its impact on one's ability to hold a clearance. You know, you mentioned it, the changing societal acceptance of marijuana, which is reflected more and more in new laws at the state level, is generating a lot of demand signals for change in this area to include how we view marijuana involvement within the federal government workforce, especially for those, like I say, who are clearance holders or occupied national security positions. So the question most frequently asked uh, that we're on the receiving end is, hey, are the current adjudicated processes on involvement with marijuana impacting the ability to attract young talent, especially not only in the federal government, but into the intelligence community? So it's a fair question. The intelligence community is not getting any younger. And in fact, this seems to be indicative of across the federal government that the under 30 population is decreasing and not increasing. So we obviously see the need to improve recruitment. One of the things that people are questioning is restrictions on marijuana use 
contributing to that, especially, like I say, with the states kind of going in the other direction. But but you did mention, and I just want to reiterate, the federal law continues to prohibit marijuana usage in the federal workplace as it continues to be defined as an illegal substance under federal law. So therefore, the you know, you look at what the states, a lot of the states are doing. Uh, I believe there's 21 states that now have some form of, uh, or 26 states of some form of legal marijuana use on the books. The changes of those restrictions by some states and localities does not change the federal workplace as being designated as a, as a drug-free workplace. So federal employees who are eligible to access classified information or occupy a sensitive position within the federal government are currently prohibited from using controlled substances such as marijuana on or off duty. But as a group, we continue to monitor pending legislation and obviously we may re-examine the security clearance policy should there be a change to federal law concerning marijuana use. But now having said that, we are looking at a lot of differing perspectives where we have flexibility from an adjudicative standpoint related to uh, past marijuana use. So we believe it's important to clarify guidance regarding the treatment of past marijuana use during the personnel vetting process uh, in the adjudicative process. But again, going back, if, if you're a young college graduate seeking employment uh, in the federal government or in the intelligence community, should you be penalized for past experimental use of marijuana absent any other blemishes on your record? And so as an example of these ongoing discussions, I know the intelligence community is collectively moving away from a previous practice of recognizing one year of abstinence from marijuana use prior to joining the intelligence community. And and we believe that a better line in the sand would point to the time you actually commit to your career within the intelligence community. That would be the important point where you're expected to refrain from any marijuana uses, not just a one or two year recency rule. We're hoping that this messaging will improve recruitment efforts, attracting those who have experimented with marijuana, opening up opportunities to apply where they previously may have displayed reluctance to actually apply, fearing that experimental use of marijuana would be disqualifying. So so it goes back to seed four in the adjudicative guidelines that point to a whole person concept adjudicative approach. So you look at the whole person and that's where you evaluate the trust and the integrity and the, and the character, the characteristics of a trusted person that I mentioned previously. But you also mentioned CBD oil, and this issue frequently comes up as well. You know, I was in the grocery store over the weekend and walked up, there was a cabinet there under lock and key, kind of similar to how they have tobacco products now, and it said wellness center. And I looked and there was all a lot of CBD oils, lotions, uh, shower steamers, bath bombs, uh, things like this. But even though those are available over the counter to consumers, it's important to recognize that the FDA still does not certify the levels of THC and CBD oils and products. So therefore, when you're actually utilizing these products, you're taking a risk that the THC content, which by the way is 0.03%, it has to be below that level um, in CBD oils, you're taking a risk that that content could be above the federal legal limits. So usage of unregulated CBD oils could result in a positive drug test. If you're under a drug testing program or if you're applying for a job, a position that requires a drug test, you could test positive by use of these CBD oils if it's above the federal legal limits. Obviously, to minimize this risk, individuals seeking those kind of jobs may want to think twice 
and wish to refrain just for that reason that the THC content may be over the federal legal levels and wait for uh, it to be better regulated by the FDA. So that's where we are on CBD oils. It's a tricky subject, but, but we're hoping that the regulations will improve to allow these products more openly in the, in the cleared environments. And then you mentioned the investment of marijuana-related businesses, and, and, and this obviously comes up quite frequently. But to put it in simple terms, if you invest in a legal activity, you know, a mutual fund, stock markets, that's not an issue. But if you knowingly and directly invest in a federally illegal activity, that's where the issue is. And investment in these, it's currently tied to our personal conduct adjudicative guideline and would be assessed as such during the adjudicative process. What that means is, again, the whole person concept, how you elected to invest in these things and whether you're willing to divest and that sort of thing. So a lot to consider. But we continue to assess these issues and balance future policy considerations, and we continue to monitor the Hill and congressional action on on pending legislation in this area. So again, this is a changing societal norm, which we need to consider as we continue to carve out policy defining Trusted Workforce 2.0. For a long time, I really enjoyed referring to the personnel security process as a 1947 Chrysler, and I still do (laughs) like that. But I think that Trusted Workforce 2.0 has paved the way for I mean, you're a nice, I, I don't know, I don't know what you are now, a, a mid-grade vehicle, but you're making progress. Policies are are changing in their scope a little bit. And so we still urge a caution of like abstain. If you can abstain from drug use prior to applying, that's a, that's a good rule. But I think that's a big takeaway for me because we see clearance applicants all the time who will opt out of applying because, hey, they're afraid to list that previous drug use. There is a whole person concept, so there aren't hard and fast, you know, there are guidelines, suitability guidelines, especially within the IC that you might come up against. I encourage folks to apply, if especially if they have a passion for that career set. And yes, if you can be proactive enough to abstain, but don't always opt yourself out. I've heard from people who have pursued a position in the private sector because they were sure their clearance wouldn't go through. Lo and behold, they were actually able to obtain the security clearance because again, it's not always you have to, you know, have never have done a drug for two years prior to applying. And then, yeah, know your supplier. I mean, that's drug use 101, Mark. If you're going to put a bath bomb in my stocking, kids, I think you should make sure that it's well supplied, that it comes with a testing kit. We've urged that same caution, like just how much is that CBD product worth? And then I have to tell my brother that I can't invest in his marijuana business, but I can in my mutual fund. So those are three great takeaways that I've gotten. Fantastic. Good, good. We are trying to get this message out and we do recruitment efforts and and we get this question a lot. So we're trying to get this message out that, hey, characteristics of a trusted person is a wide range. Obviously, everyone's human, but don't let that deter you from applying to a position, especially within the uh, uh, federal government or the intelligence community. And then being honest and upfront too, because I mean, what will get you in trouble is if you fail to disclose it and then and then go down the road. So I think there's something that we said, I think the process recognizes that you want people who are a key component of reliability and trustworthiness is being honest and saying like, hey, I did this in the past, but this is why it's in the past and this is why I'm willing to give it up for the future. Absolutely. I so appreciate chatting with you. Is there anything else that I didn't ask about that you wanted to ask? We covered a lot and I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation as we continue down the path of trusted workforce. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. 
Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. If you're a U.S. citizen with an active security clearance, find your next security clear job at clearancejobs.com. Whether you're actively seeking a new job requiring security clearance or you just want to keep in contact with hiring managers, Clearance Jobs is the largest security cleared career network. Founded in 2002, Clearance Jobs is a secure, vetted, private career network, meaning only pre-screened defense and intelligence recruiters can get access to your candidate profile. Clearance Jobs is the largest community of government contracting and federal government recruiters and security cleared candidates. Both sides brought together to fill the jobs that safeguard our nation. Register for a free profile to connect, communicate, and network with defense industry companies and government agencies and their recruiters. Don't yet have a security clearance? Arm yourself with the intelligence to get one at clearancejobs.com. Search thousands of articles in clearance career resources at clearancejobs.com. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm back with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about something that gets very little attention in the security clearance world, and that is the association's questions on the SF-86. And Lindy, I think that is because 99%, if not more, of security clearance applicants just check no automatically. It's not something that is an issue in most people's lives. And it's something that I think people give very little attention to. But that's not to say that there aren't applicants out there who do have concerns about this issue. And when it comes up, it can be a bit of a doozy. So I understand that there was a an applicant recently on clearancejobs.com who raised a question about specifically a motorcycle gang. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, about this time last year, we wrote about a, a Doha case, actually, of somebody who was in an OMG, which is not all the slang that the cool kids are using. It was an outlaw motorcycle gang, which I didn't even know was a, was a legal term. I don't know. And it had his security clearance denied and appealed that appealed a statement of reasons based on his participation in this outlaw motorcycle gang, but was not able to do so. And it was because of that kind of associations issue. And he was actually a member of a local chapter that was probably okay, but they had an association with a national chapter. Again, I I learned so much and so little at the same time about these outlaw motorcycle gangs because he was a part of a local chapter that maybe was not doing anything nefarious, but it still had the same kind of name as this national chapter that the FBI was looking into. His association with that outlaw motorcycle gang was enough to deny a security clearance. So I think it just kind of raised a red flag for me to say, like, you might even join a local chapter of something that might not be okay, but you really have to think bigger picture about what the organizations you're joining stand for. You know, even if you're like, hey, is this just a social club for me? I don't really, I don't care, quote unquote, about the, you know, political leanings or bigger issues behind this. That's not really going to hold water for the government as we frequently talk about in denials revocations. The government is always going to make the decision based on pursuing its own interests and best interests. And it's not going to really care about your social habits per se. Yeah, it's true. And it's an interesting case. You know, there are basically a few different categories, affiliations, if you will, or or groups that can present problems for folks in the security clearance process. And one of them is exactly what you're referring to, uh, any sort of uh, group or or organization uh, whose mission or, or aim is criminal activity. Frankly, even groups that maybe that's not their mission or their aim, but it's something that is a byproduct of whatever they're doing or something that is really closely affiliated with what they're doing. So I think for most people, that's pretty straightforward. But there are some other 
groups that maybe aren't as intuitive. And one of them is any sort of organization that is dedicated to depriving others of their civil rights. Any group, for example, KKK or any sort of white supremacy organization or any sort of more militant, you know, entities that are focused on these sorts of things are going to present real problems for applicants. And believe it or not, that actually does come up every once in a while in denial and revocation cases where, you know, somebody is affiliated with an, an ideological group like that and it serves, you know, to bar them from obtaining a security clearance. The other and perhaps most obvious example is any sort of a group that espouses the violent overthrow of the U.S. government or terrorism or anything along those lines. And so a common denominator among all this stuff is you know, any organization that uses violence or espouses violence to achieve its goals is really going to be a non-starter. Yeah, knowing the associations there, I think we used to kind of talk about how allegiance to the United States was an adjudicative guideline that we rarely or never saw become an issue. It's an interesting thing. I've seen an uptick in allegiance to the United States, at least flags under continuous vetting. I don't know if those are actually borne out in like denials and revocations yet, but that's worth noting is that I don't know if it's continuous vetting or just you know, the greater prevalence maybe of domestic terrorism organizations within the U.S. I think it's something you you need to be aware, again, of what your associations are and that that is something that the government cares about. And again, I can certainly see it coming up with folks who maybe you're a part of a, an organization in college or have friends that are a part of these organizations. And they join it based on a social issue. But again, if it's a part of a bigger issue or somehow gets tagged into some kind of domestic terrorism umbrella, that's going to have, you know, security clearance implications. Not that they couldn't be mitigated if you really are that ignorant. But again, as we can see from just, you know, the outlaw motorcycle gang example, just saying it was a quote unquote social club is not going to be enough. Yeah, it's it's true. And, you know, it brings us to an interesting question here that has come up with some of our clients in the past. And that is where the gray areas are and whether or not certain organizations or involvement in certain organizations is actually reportable under the questions that are on the SF-86. So, you know, there's a couple of things that I would tell anybody who's in a situation like that. The first one is you've got to really think about getting legal advice because this is not something you want to play around with. We have seen cases in the past where people have kind of played fast and loose with these questions and it's resulted in criminal prosecution and there was a, a very um, widely reported case of a gentleman a year or two ago who was affiliated with a very militaristic organization. Uh, I believe they were espousing either white supremacy or some racial animus. And uh, he did not report that on his SF-86 and was subsequently prosecuted when the government found out about it. The second thing is there are some constitutional implications involved in these questions. And if you actually read them carefully, you will notice that the way that the government has written them is very specific, very narrow, very deliberate, where they talk about things like specific intent and other legal terms that, frankly, some lay people may not understand or, or may not be able to sort of apply to their specific situation. So again, I mean, these are very rare situations, but they are very serious when they come up. And with the constitutional and other legal implications at play, sometimes folks ask, well, you know, where is that line? You know, can I advocate for this or can I advocate for that? Or maybe the group that I'm joining or I'm a member of 
is, you know, predominantly focused on, you know, one issue, but they have a, a spinoff or, you know, some sort of sub entity that advocates a more violent or radical approach. Those are all very fact specific case by case questions. And the reality is, from a legal standpoint, a lot of this stuff is kind of unsettled law. There are gray areas here where and open questions of the implications and the the interchange between, uh, for example, a First Amendment right to free speech and, and freedom of association versus a security clearance. And in many of these cases, what the government winds up saying is, well, you know, a security clearance is a privilege, not a right, and we can therefore condition it on just about anything we want to. But there are also situations where they go too far. And so the courts have said, you know, we're going to evaluate these things on a case-by-case basis while giving a lot of deference to the executive branch on security clearance determinations. Yeah, I mean, it's a caveat that I, you know, that comes up when I'm talking to folks, you know, kind of across the ODNI policy framework. They are very aware that the U.S. has a constitution, which is a unique document. It's not always the case when you're working with other countries and how they operate their personnel security programs. But there's just things that security policy is cognizant of that, that you have First Amendment rights to speech, to assembly, to be a part of different associations. And so it's just really being aware of where the lines cross. And I should bring up, you know, the OMG case that kind of prompted this conversation. I think a part of the issue was his security officer brought it up to him and said, hey, there's I see actually this this group has ties to the FBI and he didn't disassociate till a year later. Maybe um, maybe his brother was in the club. I don't know. But there is something if your security officer tells you that a group you're a part of is under FBI investigation, even if it's like a broader, maybe you should just cut ties right then and right there. So it, we're our own worst enemy when it comes to this stuff, because I think there's a lot of ambiguity now about a lot of these online groups and forums and participation and, and assembly and what you can and can't do. But when some legal action does end up getting taken on some level, that's where there's no more gray area. And as we often say in these cases, a little bit of common sense and good judgment goes a long way. Nobody expects security clearance holders to be perfect. Nobody expects backgrounds to always be 100% squeaky clean. But you've got to show if you want to have a prayer of winning your case that you act reasonably and responsibly and with good judgment under the circumstances. And so if you are involved in a group or or an organization that, you know, maybe you got involved with them thinking that it was a, a perfectly legitimate group. And then subsequently, as you kind of get deeper into it, you find out eh, there's some parts of this that I'm not real comfortable with. It's not too late to disassociate yourself. And as long as you can demonstrate that once you've discovered what the concern was, you withdrew and you severed your ties, that's not necessarily going to be a bar to getting a clearance as long as it's reasonable what you did. And it was reasonable that you didn't know prior to affiliating. So Again, a lot of this stuff is is common sense and, and good judgment, but when in doubt, uh, seek out uh, the legal guidance, make sure that you are getting your ducks in a row in terms of documentation. If there's things out there that the group that you're joining or part of have published that might lead a reasonable person to believe that their aims are different than what you ultimately found them to be, then that sort of stuff could be valuable evidence. So you really want to hang on to that. Documentation, your key to maintaining, keeping, or obtaining a security clearance. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? 
Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.